the first question I wanted to ask you is basically introduce yourself in few words uh, for the audience. This is a new tradition that I wanted to start with the top producers group. You know mm -hmm. how most of the sales groups were members in uh, a lot of these sales groups and most of the sales groups are kind of have the same concept. So I want to make uh, our group a little bit different and uh, I want to uh, deliver more value by uh, focusing on different topics each day and every Thursday from now on we're just going to introduce uh, top producers, uh, true top producers and um, I figured what better way to start with a living legend like you and uh, please introduce yourself because a lot of the uh, salespeople don't realize what a fortune it is to, to be a member of our group. Alright, tell me when to go. You can go now. <laughs> Good morning, Velco. A pleasure to be with you on your inaugural uh, radio uh, endeavor. I'm I'm honored and look forward to not only doing this with you, but looking forward to the other ones you're going to be doing in the future. Uh, my name, for the, your listeners, is Ben Gay III. I'm famous not only because I have a name very similar to an ointment that everybody knows about, uh, but because I'm the editor, publisher, author of The Closers series, which is the best-selling sales mat material uh, ever printed and produced. And uh, it, it, we've sold millions of copies of it, but because of the turnover in salespeople, uh, we uh, always have a new market looking at us. I live in Placerville, California, a little town where gold was discovered. The gold, the first gold strike was six miles from where I'm sitting down on the American River. And But I, I fly out of Sacramento and fly all over the world doing my sales training seminars, occasional keynotes and things like that, but I really don't like that. I like a, at least a half a day, a full day of training with eager-to-learn salespeople. My market, if you're listening, is commissioned salespeople. Got other kinds uh, mixed in, but the, the type of person I like to work with and who seems to appreciate the way I approach things is the type of person who, if he doesn't sell something today, might not eat tomorrow, except for, of course, what he saved up from previous victories. So uh, we work with uh, you know, vacuum cleaner salesmen, cookware salesmen, timeshare, automobiles, a lot of automobile folks, real estate, just about anything you could name, insurance, etc., cetera, uh, because selling at its core is selling. For instance, I don't claim to be an expert in the automobile business. I've bought, I was adding it up the other day for another client, client who'd heard a story he didn't believe. I've bought more cars than most of your uh, car salespeople have ever sold. Uh, I've that I can keep track of over 500, it looked like maybe 600 or more luxury automobiles from Stutz Bearcats to Rolls Royces to Lincolns to Cadillacs, etc. as contest awards, in addition to the fact I had to drive something that made me look good, uh, but as contact uh, uh, contest winners uh, to reward them for their good behavior in sales. So, uh, but the, the commonality I've discovered in selling is most salespeople don't understand what they're selling. And I've devoted my career to making sure they do understand that. I was a grade C, if that, 
closer when I first started. I was probably a grade F when I first started. And uh, I'm, the t- uh, I'm the type of person who I was raised as a Southern gentleman. So if I'm sitting in your house selling uh, Kirby vacuum cleaners, Kirby has a philosophy that the sales presentation isn't over until they buy or the police are called. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I wasn't raised that way. Therefore, I had to figure out a way to sell while remaining polite and calm and not uh, uh, harming my, my values, my personal values. And I finally figured out a way to do that. It's called sales infiltration. We can discuss it if, if you'd like later. Uh, it's in the closers part two, the last chapter. And I think it's the best thing ever written about selling. The way I like to describe it to people, Velco, is it's the the color picture on the puzzle box. Um, all the books I've written, I've written 24, 12 under my own name, 12 ghost written for other sales trainers primarily. Um, everything that I know about selling, the parts and the pieces are in those books, primarily in the closers part one, the closers part two, sales closing power, the book I wrote for J. Douglas Edwards' family after Doug died. And The Art and Science of Resort Sales, a book I did with Dennis McCann, specifically for the timeshare business. But those are the pieces of the puzzle. Sales Infiltration, last chapter, closes part two, is the color picture. And by that, I mean it shows you what a, a professional sales career is supposed to look like when you become a master closer and sales infiltrator yourself. You'd hate to put together a puzzle, I'm sure, with all the pieces if you didn't know what the picture was supposed to look like when you got done. I wrote it in Sales Infiltration. It's the best thing, in my opinion, ever written about selling. It's certainly the best thing I ever wrote. Wow. Yeah, it's uh, amazing how much history is behind your uh, career and and how much uh, precious experience you have. Hopefully, we have enough time to cover uh uh, everything but uh, how do you spend most of your time now I know you mentioned a lot about uh, uh, writing and uh, even ghost writing what do you do nowadays well I do 24 sales training seminars a year Gigi is my third wife and I have no desire to meet my fourth wife so I scaled back from 300 seminars a year to uh, 24 and a negotiated agreement when we got married 19 years ago uh, so I do that uh, two or three times a month, no more than three times in a month. That was also part of the deal. And then I sell on the phone uh, My regarding my materials. I upsell. You call to buy a book. Odds are pretty good you're going to spend five or $600 on the full series. Uh, and then I sell other people's material, sometimes on commission, but usually what I'm doing is testing a script or something that I wrote for them. For instance, this morning, before you and I started and made contact, I sold a one-acre building lot in uh, Arizona, uh, one of 500-plus that I've sold since I started working with those people. And... uh, it was an incoming call off of a, an ad they saw and the material they got. And then sight unseen, uh, they bought an acre of land in uh, Arizona. So I sell, but primarily while testing stuff I've done for other people, I don't like to write a script for somebody, hand it to them and not know if it's going to work or not. I know by the time I hand it to them, I know that if delivered properly, it does work because I've done it. 
So that's another part of my day. I write sales scripts, uh, the uh, ads, uh, the, the copy part of ads. I'm not an artist, but the copy part of ads, uh, an occasional ghostwritten book for somebody else. And, uh, and then I do coaching where a lot of salespeople around the English speaking world work with me, uh, at my website, bfg3.com. That's B as in Ben, F as in Frank, G as in Gay, the number three, dot com. Uh, I explained the coaching program there, but I have a, a program set up where, uh, Unlike lawyers and doctors and most coaches, when I say hello, you haven't just spent 15 minutes of your time. I literally bill by the minute. So if you've got a quick question, uh, it only costs you a minute's time off your account. And uh, I, I have a lot of those. I have one gentleman who paid me 500, a $500 retainer almost five years ago, and it's still not gone because his questions seem tend to be, Ben, I'm with this person. Here's the problem, da da da. Yes or no? I go no. He says thank you and hangs up. <laughs> and I probably haven't written down all the times he's done that. It's it's not it's almost not worth the trouble. And I have customers who spend thousands of dollars a month working through uh, problems. I'm not a psychologist by training, but you can't be a good salesperson without having some of that in you. So I work with my coaching clients on mainly business and sales issues, but also uh, personal issues. If your head's all screwed up, it's hard to uh, stay on track and go to what you're supposed to do with your business hat on yeah i agree plus a lot of uh, salespeople um self self-criticize and um you know self-sabotage is the biggest problem with with salespeople you, in my opinion yeah you've written about that a couple of times i really liked what you wrote i totally agree with you Uh, when 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 I was younger and didn't didn't have the discipline I have now, I would let my personal life spill over or some problem I had spill over, and it affected my presentations from the front of the room. It uh, affected my face-to-face -face encounters in closing, and I've even had, had back in those early days. I've even had a few people say to me over the phone, "Are you okay?" I was letting it show. So I, I don't do that now. I could be talking to you from the lobby of a funeral home right now, and I would have the same attitude. Uh, when I went back in the service, I would have my funeral attitude. Yeah, and speaking of this, uh, what used to be your biggest weakness, and how did you conquer it? How did you overcome it? Uh, discipline was it, and uh, the, the way I conquered Conquered is my sponsor when I joined multi-level a multi-level marketing business called Holiday Magic, Holiday Magic and its affiliated families. We were the largest direct sales MLM company on earth by far, bigger than Amway and Shackley combined back in those days. And uh, I, I joined the business September fifteenth, nineteen sixty-five, along with another young man who was answered the same ad I did. Uh, Zig Ziglar was his name. We went through the same presentation with Bill Dempsey, our sponsor. Both put in our $91.42 and uh, turned out to be a pretty sound investment. In less than five years, I turned that $91.42 into millions of dollars. But I almost totally missed the opportunity. The first six months I was in the business, I didn't make anything. Zero. Not even a penny changed hands. I guess I forgot to sell my mother and sister some lipstick or something. And uh, in the somewhere in the sixth month, I walked into the meeting room in Atlanta, and Bill Dempsey met me at the door. He said, "Ben, I need to talk to you." And I said, "What's what's going on?" By that time, I had over five thousand dollars invested in the business. 
having gotten myself in the position where he could actually make some money. And he said, I don't want you coming to the meetings anymore. Long story short, he went on to tell me that I was depressing other people. One, because I didn't show up with anybody because I hadn't learned the scripts uh, of how you inter- uh, invite someone to a meeting. Two, I didn't know the meeting, so I couldn't be any help from the front of the room. Other people had to do my heavy lifting for me. And then when the film was over and the lights came up and the film just said, turn to the person who brought you here and ask them how you can get started in holiday magic. I didn't know what to say because I hadn't memorized the six closes. You know, if the first one worked fine. If it didn't, you had a second one and a third one. Four. Six closes were all written out. All I had to do was memorize them. And, uh, so I, I said, well, uh, I, I'm pay- one, I invested over $5,000. Two, uh, I'm paying $50 a month, which adjusted for inflation now would be $500 a month to be part of this co-op to rent the meeting room. What do you mean I can't come back? He said, you can't. You're, you, you come in with nobody. You don't participate in the meeting. When the lights come on, other people see you there. They've seen you a lot, so they assume you know something. They'll call you over to help you know, be a TO. Uh, person with their prospects and you mess them up. So we just can't go on this way. I said, all right, what do I have to do? And he said, you have to learn the material verbatim, word for word. And that included a 48 minute live presentation, the opportunity meeting and uh, the intro to bring somebody there. That was probably five minutes. And then the closes, depending on the give and take with the customer, that could be 20 minutes of memorization. So I said, okay, well, I'll promise to do it. And I started again in the meeting room and he put his hand on my chest. He said, no, no, you come in the meeting room after you've done it. Not now, after. (laughs) And I said, what did I do when I'm ready? He said, you call my office, you come up, you stand in front of my desk and you do everything I just told you to do. Or don't ever darken my doorway again. So I didn't write it down, but I'm guessing a week or 10 days later, I called him went in front of him, delivered uh, all aspects of the business verbatim, word for word, not thought for thought, (laughs) word for word. He said, excellent. Now, go take that invitation script you've learned and talk to some people and see if you can invite somebody to the meeting. A few nights later, I showed up at the meeting with five prospects. That's five more than I'd had in the previous six months. Uh, I didn't do the meeting because they didn't need me that night, but I was prepared if I'd been called up. And then the lights came up and I started in the first close and got one or two of them, went to the second close, got another one, I think, and then another close and got some more. In result, I closed that night four people, got four checks for $2,500, adjusted for inflation, that's $25,000 today, roughly. And uh, a few days later, the fifth one came in. So I got five I'd never gotten before, closed them all over the span of a couple of days and made more money that day than I'd ever made in my life. I was hooked. Your original question was, how'd you get over your hurdle? Bill Dempsey kicked me over my hurdle. he, he removed the options. I could no longer promise I'd get better, get ready, get ready someday, et cetera. I owed $5,000 and I didn't have a chance in, in Hades of paying it off unless I made some serious money. And that was the night it started. I made zero the first six months, literally zero. The last six months of that year, uh, I made $100,000 working part time, I still had a full-time job, I wasn't full of confidence, Uh, $100,000 in six months adjusted for inflation today, that's a million dollars part-time. 
because I learned the scripts and got disciplined because I was threatened with my financial life by Bill Dempsey. Hey, thanks for listening. You deserve success. You know you do. And success is well within your reach. That dream house, that dream vacation, your favorite car, whatever you're dreaming about, with the steps to the sale, the best and most relevant sales training, for today's buyer, we can help you sharpen your mind and start mastering your future now. Hey, take it for a test drive. Click on the link below. Invest in yourself. And if you have any question or you need some advice or you need to overcome a challenge in your life, just shoot me an email. Velco at VelcoSalesTraining.com. I would reply to you, guaranteed. Wow, that's a great story. Definitely very inspiring and something to be proud of. Um, what are you most proud of? Uh, the Besides the obvious, my wife, Gigi, that shows I must be a pretty good guy. I got myself an angel, and we've been together, known each other for 40 years, been married 19. Uh, we were otherwise engaged when we first met, but I kept in touch with her all those years. So that and, and our four boys, that all are their achievements. But if we're talking about business-wise, I uh, volunteered my time at San Quentin State Prison for five years. Uh, as an outside consultant, I'd come in Friday night and teach for 12 hours till Saturday morning. In my first business, it was mowing lawns in the South, and I discovered even as a kid, I didn't like mowing a lawn that barely needed mowing. I liked to mow a lawn where you could see, when you got to the end of the yard and turned around, you could see where you'd been. The reason I always jump to San Quentin when I'm asked that question is I took, uh, over the five years, thousands of people and put them through a program of sales and marketing so they'd have a skill when they got out and public speaking for their confidence level. When I went into San Quentin, uh, the recidivism rate was 67%. That meant within two years, 67% of the people that went out the front door came back in. And uh, uh, the graduates of People Builders was the name of the program I taught there and then taught later at Lompoc Federal Penitentiary and Frontier of the Woman's Prison in Southern California. The recidivism rate after they went through the course dropped from 67% to 5%. We're back in two years. So like my gla uh, glass, grass mowing, excuse me, uh, analogy, that was what I was most proud of because I could see the best results. I saw people who didn't have a chance in heck of getting out and staying out turn their lives around. I'm still in touch with quite a few of them. Uh, many of them own their own businesses. Uh, some have gone into the priesthood. Uh, one young man that I met at uh, uh, Lompoc, uh, was when I met him, he was an 18-year-old drug dealer, and his battle plan for the future was to get out. I think he had a year or two to go. Get out, uh, stick up somebody or rob somebody of a few hundred dollars to get enough seed money to get back in the drug business. That was his plan. But I saw something in him, and, and of course he had to do all the work. I just saw something in him and tried to inspire it. And... Uh, we went to work on him. He became a star student. And I'm proud to say that three years ago, instead of being a drug deal dealer in South uh, Los Angeles, he uh, graduated first in his class from San Francisco State Law School. Uh, and uh, so it's those achievements that mean the most to me, but most to me. But I, what I do is I, I took what I teach salespeople and just went inside a prison and taught them. Selling, 
communications, etc. If you're a young black man, you think the whole you might think the whole world is against you. I showed them how to work that to their advantage. Uh, and, uh, you know, I said the people, the money you want is currently maintained by middle-aged white men. So you must learn how to work with middle-aged white men. And I taught them how to do that and what we were looking for and the advantages they had. And literally can say I changed some lives. Those of us in the training business, as you know, are fond of thinking we change lives everywhere we go. Well, we can't change anybody's life. We can give somebody the tools with which they can change their own life. And, and in prisons, that was uh, the most dramatic examples. Although I could tell you about, you know, a milk truck driver, I pulled off a milk truck in front of the uh, Blackstone Hotel in Chicago years ago and uh, took him into a meeting room. I was demonstrating to people that you can recruit anywhere, anytime, anybody. Um, took him in his milk uh, man uh, uniform into the meeting, sat him in front, gave him that whole meeting and everything that Bill Dempsey had made me learn a few years before that. And uh, by the end of that year, instead of working for, I think it was $600 a month as a milkman, he made $360,000, just for inflation, $3.5 million, uh, simply because somebody took the time. But I didn't make the products. I was president of the company by that time, but I didn't make the products. I didn't create the market plan. Everybody had the same opportunity. 90% of all the people who joined that company or any other multi-level marketing company drop out. Um, he could have easily been one of those. But because he didn't, and I forced him to learn the scripts, you didn't want to work for me in my organization, Velco, and not know the scripts. <laughs> <laughs> I had learned the hard way, yeah. and I had learned the benefits of it. So, uh, those are the the life-changing ones. They're, they're all sales, marketing, and public speaking, but doing it in the prison situation and working in uh, Bedford-Stuyvesant with the Lower East Side Teen Association, places like that where you can just see overwhelming dramatic results are very rewarding. Yeah, this is, this is uh, really the best feeling when I know that uh, what you said is right on point. We don't really change lives, but uh, we inspire people and we open the door for for them to believe in themselves. And uh, it's really the the best and the most rewarding part of my job. And I'm sure uh, it's the same with you. It sounds like, uh, you know, to a lot of people, this would sound crazy because let's make it clear. You did all that uh, free, right? Yep. Yeah, uh, I tried to sell it to San Quentin, uh, and the warden agreed. He thought it was a, a wonderful deal, and I gave him a consulting quote, and he said, fine, I'm with you. He'd heard about me because San Quentin was almost within, except for a hill, almost within sight of my house. They were on one side of San Francisco Bay. I was on the other side. So I was sitting in my office one day and looked over there and thinking, what am I going to do? What's my next great challenge? And I saw the smokestack. That was all I could see from there, from San Quentin sticking up. And I said, yeah, that'd be a place to go. Put together a little presentation, drove over and uh, gave it to him. And he said, we're going to get it done. I said, when do we start? He says, well, you know, there's an approval process. And he shoved over, as his secretary getting, and he shoved over a stack of papers. I swear to God, I think they were a foot high. He said, just full, fill this out. Well, like you, I'm sure, Velco, I'm not a detail man. I'm a salesman. Uh, so I, I looked at that pile and I said, all right, let's say I fill it out with the help of my secretary. Then what? And he said, well, then we'll submit it and we'll get it approved. I said, how long is that going to take? 
He said, because I'm going to push it about two years. <laughs> and, I, and I said, well, Red, his name was Red Nelson, the warden of San Quentin at the time. I said, Red, um, what if I did it for free? And he said, we could start this afternoon. <laughs> and so I walked from with him, walked from his office across the driveway through the, the sally port, the big heavy gates clanking like out of an old monster movie. And within uh, an hour, I was standing in front of a couple of hundred people. And that was my that was my start. And then it turned into 12 hours a week uh, Friday. And they had to give up their time, too. Keep in mind, Friday night is movie night. If they're going to have a decent dinner, it's decent dinner night. You had to give up all that to sit in that class for 12 hours. And uh, thousands over the years did it. And uh, cute story. A group of people dug a tunnel from underneath. You'd have to picture San Quentin. It's medieval, built in 1849. Dug a tunnel from beneath one of the cell blocks across the driveway and uh, out towards the bay. Their theory was they would pop out on the side of the hill and be gone before anybody knew they were missing. But they came up too soon, and they opened a little flap of grass to see where they were, right next to the, the guard snack shack outside the walls and a guard sitting there eating a hamburger looked over and saw a a face and a flap of grass drop back down and uh, realized that wasn't what he was supposed to be seeing from that position. So I read about it in the paper. Let's say it was on a Monday or Tuesday. Friday, I go in and I said to Lieutenant Terry Wooster, who was sort of my sponsor there, he greased the skids for me whenever I wanted to do something like go meet Charlie Manson, for instance. the uh, I when I walked in, I said, Terry, please tell me none of our people were involved in that. And he said, Ben, of course not. If people builders had dug the tunnel, they'd all be gone. <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was very proud of that. While Charlie Manson's on my mind, he asked to see me from his cell in the adjustment center. He could see me come and go every Friday night and notice that maybe to that crowd, I was a bit of a celebrity. So he asked Terry Wooster one day, if he could meet me. And Terry said, I'll ask him. So uh, Terry did. And I said, well, send him down. He said, no, no, Ben, this is Charlie Manson. He's in the, in the adjustment center. He doesn't come down. You have to go up to him. I said, oh, okay, fine. So I met with him three times, about three hours each time, sit locked in his cell with him. And I said all that to say this. He had one book in his cell. And he said it was his Bible. He could not have built the Manson family without it. It was How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Wow. Now, there's an example of how you can take great material and use it for good or evil. Uh, he, he was evil with a capital E, but he, he got his running orders out of How to Win Friends and Influence People. Yeah, we've you know I've seen documentaries and I've read books about uh, Charlie Manson and uh, he uh, was a very intelligent guy from from what it seems. Uh, tell us more about your experience with him. Well, it, it was street smarts is what he had. One thing I'll tell I tell tell people who saw him on Geraldo's show or, or you know things like that where he gets up and goes booga booga booga. Uh, he's crazy, but he's not crazy like that. That's a show he puts on. He can be very calm and reserved, and you can have an intelligent conversation with him. Not perfect English grammar, but 
you can have a great conversation with him and you can while you're talking to him and he's he never breaks eye contact with you you can sort of see how he might have gotten young people who were you know between points a and b and gotten them to drift off uh to the side but we'd be sitting there talking and he would hear the keys rattling of a guard coming down the the catwalk and uh the tier on, on his tier and of course if the guards rattle the keys when they want to be heard if they don't want to be heard they hold them in their hand and sneak up on you so it's sort of a game everybody plays but charlie would be sitting there and he'd hear the keys coming he'd say excuse me ben and he'd get up and run over to the bar and go booga, 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 and, you know act crazy and all then come back and they'd say all right charlie calm down and they'd walk on he'd come back sit back down on his bunk and he says they just love that so <laughs> nut, nuts he is, but he's not nuts the way you see him when he's putting on a show on television. Yeah. And uh, since we mentioned uh, Charlie Manson, uh, I know you've mentioned another big name earlier, uh, Zig Ziglar, and I'm sure that our listeners all know about Zig and they'll be interested of uh, hearing some stories with Zig and tell us a little bit more about him. Well, Zig was, uh, I, I feel like we grew up together in selling because he hadn't really achieved a whole lot either. He was selling cookware in Columbia, South Carolina when he answered the ad and came to Atlanta for the same meeting I was in. But in fact, he was 18 years older than I was. Uh, Zig was in the Navy the day I was born. So uh, there was more of a spread than I realized. But when you're younger, you don't notice that. As long as his hair isn't gray and mine wasn't gray, I thought we were the same age. But uh, Zig was uh, an excellent sales person from the front of the room, group closing. And uh, his, his partner, I had a partner, the greatest salesman that I've ever worked with or known, James H. Rucker Jr. I write about him in all the books. Uh, Jimmy uh, was the hard closer on our team. Uh, the uh, I, I was really good at getting the low-lying fruit and being the personality boy from the front of the room. Well, that was Zig. He had a closer that worked with him. His partner was named Mel Lanius, and Mel was a stone-cold closer. But I'd, I'd love to, uh, when Zig was alive, I used to love to kid him. If he was within earshot of, uh, earshot of me at a meeting we were both working, I would say things like, oh, yes, yes, Zig and I are good friends. In fact, uh, he works for me or worked for me, as the case may be at the time. Uh, we, we started together with the same investment on the same day uh, and so on. But within two years, I was president of the company and Zig was our top distributor still in the field. He was really good. We had a contest one time. The first, it was a year long contest. First prize was a secret. How you can get people to work for a secret prize, I don't know, but I did. Second prize was a Rolls Royce third was uh, Lincoln Continental, I think, and then a Thunderbird, or Ford Thunderbird. And uh, I won the contest. Well, it turned out the secret prize was president of the company. Now, the reason it was a secret, Bill Patrick, who owned the company later, William Penn Patrick, told me later was, in case somebody won it that I didn't think ought to be president, I would have changed <laughs> something else. But he said, when you won it, I was happy with that. And that one of the running jokes Zig and I had for years, I'd be having a bad day or something. You know, I was 23, 24 years old, way too young to be running a multi-million dollar international uh, corporate operation. Uh, but, but I hung on by my teeth and asked questions and faked my way through it. But on a, an exceptionally bad day, if I happened to be talking to Zig, I would I'd say, Zig, here's the deal. 
you bring me keys to the rolls and I'll give you my keys to the office. Let's swap. He said, oh, no, no, you beat me fair and square. So uh, that, that was our running joke. I knew Zig, I'm not revealing anything, there's not much to reveal, but I knew Zig when Zig was a young, hustling salesperson in his mid-30s. And as I used to say uh, to him, I knew you before you were Saint Zig. His conversion was complete, absolute, and true, but I always smile when I hear, and not only Zig, lots of other people that I knew uh, from those days, I always smile when I think of where they really came from, Dr. Napoleon Hill worked for me the last two years of his life. But I first came in contact with him that first meeting with Bill Dempsey in Atlanta when he gave me two things, an old beat up copy of Think and Grow Rich and a scratched up record called The Strangest Secret. And within two years, both of the men, Hill who wrote the book and Earl Nightingale who made the recording worked for me. And I, and I would tell them the reason I was able to get that far that fast was because of what they had taught me, even though I didn't know them personally in the very beginning. So uh, those are some of the folks, sort of the behind the scenes things. I'll tell you a cute story. We had a, uh, it was by coincidence, it wasn't a planned meeting, but whenever the, the big wigs were in town in San Rafael, California, in Tiburon, where I lived, um, they would stay with me at our house. We had plenty of bedrooms and all. So one weekend, by coincidence, Dr. Napoleon Hill was there all weekend long, as was Earl Nightingale, as was J. Douglas Edwards, the great uh, sales trainer. I met him, by the way. I won a contest which entitled me to go to Miami, Florida, to an American Sales Masters meeting, be sitting in the front row for two or three days, and have a private dinner with him. Within two years, uh, he was working for me. And years later, I wrote the book, Sales Closing Power, from his material that he never wrote. Uh, while he was alive. So uh, anyway, Hill, Nightingale, and Edwards, and Ben Gay are all up at the house, and uh, people would ask me about it years later. What was it like? I think they thought we were in white robes, sitting around cross-legged on the floor, swapping profound statements. Uh, what we were doing was Napoleon Hill was trying to figure out a way to peddle more books, and we were helping. Earl Nightingale was the voice of Holiday Magic and all of our affiliated companies. He was looking for more recording work and to sell us more records. And J. Douglas Edwards was there to, for speaking engagements. He didn't have a book or anything. I think he had some, a record to sell back in those days. So they said, all right, but what went on? What do you remember from that weekend? I said, I remember that none of them, not one of the three, could shoot pool. <laughs> We spent a lot of time in the game room and not one of them ever won a game. They never even won eight ball. You know, when you play eight ball, you can win because the other person knocks in the eight by mistake. I couldn't even give them a game that way. We played several rounds of eight ball and they still managed to lose. And, you know, well, what did you talk about? I said, well, whatever the sports thing was that was on that day, went out on the boat and floated around San Francisco Bay. We were just buddies. All the legend stuff came later. Earl had been bankrupt two or three times, he told me, corporate and personal. Uh, I don't know what the mix was. Dr. Hill was, uh, un until a business partner of mine, Morris Pickus, gave Clem Stone a copy of Think and Grow Rich. Clem w. Clement Stone had combined insurance company with hundreds of thousands of agents. And he loved the book that Morris Pickus gave him, and he made all of his agents buy it and read it. 
and that rescued Dr. Hill from obscurity and his book from obscurity. Uh, it wasn't the talk of, uh, of uh, the subject matter of talks like it is today. So it was, sometimes I hesitate to tell people about those times. I have a friend who remained nameless who worships a deceased uh, speaker, philosopher, etc. I uh, just absolutely worships him. And I don't want to be the one to tell him that much of his impressions and so on of that person are inaccurate. Not, not bad. The guy was a great guy, but they're not accurate. And the way I remember, uh, do you know who Roy Rogers is? The king of the cowboys. Yeah. Well, Roy Rogers was the king of the cowboys, and if you're my age, you grew up worshiping either uh, Gene Autry or Roy Rogers. You couldn't like them both. I like Roy Rogers. Well, my father sold him his ranch in Apple Valley, California, many years ago, and uh, and there was no buildings there at the time except our house. Uh, so Roy came to the house to sign the papers, he and Dale Evans to sign the papers to buy the ranch. And I grew up with that story. And one day with my mother there, coincidentally, I said, uh, you know, I, I met Roy Rogers. He wasn't just a hero to me. I met him. He came to our house to buy the ranch and everything. And my dad sold him. And mother said, you never met Roy Rogers. I, I turned around. I've been telling that story for years. I said, yes, I did. He came to the house. He came to the house and signed the papers, but you were in school. You never met Roy Rogers. And I was really mad at my mother for quite some time after that for taking away that little memory. And sometimes I feel like I'm doing that when I talk about behind the scenes stuff with people because there are people who've hung their, their hats on fill in the blank, Dr. Norman Vincent Peale or Earl Nightingale or what have you. And what I'm trying to tell people now is you weren't there with me, but don't mourn the fact you weren't. Look around at the people who are leading you today and speaking at the seminars today and know that they are the Dr. Hills, Earl Nightingales, J. Douglas Edwards of the future. And you may be, because I, I was younger than all of them, uh, the the youngest of them was 12 years older than I am. So, uh, and I said, you may be the Ben Gay in the crowd. You know, I was sitting there listening to them, worshiping them, and now they're all dead. And I know a lot of the truths behind their real stories. Uh, but, and I won't name names now because I want to do it in a very positive light. But I said, look around the room. See that guy in the back there signing books? He's going to be just as famous as Dr. Hill in a few years. Know him now so you can talk about him like I talk about Dr. Hill. See that guy over there who just spoke before I came up? He's going to be the next Earl Nightingale. Get to know him now so you can say that you knew him when. It gives you street creds, uh, gives you a little more to talk about, and so on when you have those links. But they, they nor I were godlike creatures except by the reputation they were clever enough to build and the passage of time. Hey, Velko here. Listen, we have been talking about some amazing selling tips and tricks. But if you want to know more about anything we've been discussing, you should check out the Steps to the Sell. It's the most relevant sales training in the market today. The ultimate process to create raving fans and brand advocates. So click on the link and join me in the Steps to the Sell. Master your future. Never take another fresh up. Or hey, if you have a specific question, just shoot me an email. Velko at VelkoSalesTraining.com Ogmandino is a good friend of mine appeared in a lot of our seminars for us. Og was a falling down drunk. 
and I'm not revealing anything there. Uh, he tells the story. I don't mean when by the time he became famous, he was a falling down drunk before he became famous. Uh, and then he turned his life around. So that was part of his life story. But his life story isn't nearly as important if you don't know those facts that they came back from horrible situations uh, and overcame them. And uh, so if I have anything to offer along those lines, that's probably it, that uh, I knew them and I can tell you all about them. I won't tell you everything I know about most of them, but I, I can tell you a lot. But I can also tell you none of them have anything on whoever's listening to this call today. Velka, you have, I don't know how many people are going to ultimately listen to it, but, but probably over time, hundreds of people listening to it that will be just as successful or more successful than any of the people we've talked about. Yeah, amazing that uh, you guys were hanging out together and uh, just master thinking and uh, brainstorming on how to improve yourselves. That's uh, it's truly amazing. And, and how to make more money. <laughs> how to make more money. <laughs> that was sort of important. Yeah. I'll tell you a quick story about Earl Nightingale. It's about the Nightingale Conant Corporation. I worked with their two VPs of sales primarily, Les and Ron Davis, not brothers but the same last name. I had agreed to customize, lead the field, one of Nightingale's second most famous thing after The Strangest Secret. So to read, lead the field with holiday magic cosmetics. Another one, lead the field with state power motor oil additives. Another one of our companies, lead the field with Bob Cummings vitamins and so on, and then sell them to our people so they can motivate themselves without us having to be there holding their hand every few minutes. So I'm, I'm making up dates now. I didn't write it down at the time. It's not terribly important. But on, let's say, January 1st, I agreed to do it, and we were going to launch June 1st. Long about February 1st, again, I'm making up dates, Ron and or Les Davis, probably both of them, called me from Chicago and said, uh, we need to get that order going. And I said, well, we've agreed to it. You know, gentleman's handshake. We'd never had any contracts between us. Gentleman's handshake. We're launching June 1st. They said, no, Ben, we need to do it now or there won't be a Nightingale Conant come June 1st. They needed the order right then. So I moved it up six months. In fact, we bought it and, add and added the materials to our line before we had the literature to back it up. And that doesn't make Earl Nightingale any less of a person. It's another one of those things where he dug his way out of a hole and went on to great, great success. Yeah. So never give up, right? And never give up. Uh, well, uh, I'm sure there's some uh, people who are not uh, people that are listening now and they, they want to become great and, and they believe that they're great. Uh, what is a great uh, starting uh, advice for what would you... Um, What will be your one piece of advice for for somebody who's just starting in sales right now? Uh, great, great question. Let me tell you, I'll tell you how to solve 85% of all the problems in selling. Uh, you pick a quality product. Let's say you're going to sell cars. You find the best quality product you can find uh, that you're comfortable with. Rolls-Royce may be out of your league or not. 
maybe a Lexus. My son yesterday bought a brand new Subaru something. Looks like a fancy hyped up station wagon, whatever that is. And uh, uh, that's the car he wanted. It fits into his work and he's just thrilled with it. So whether it's a Subaru or Rolls Royce or anything else, you pick a quality product or service that is competitively priced. Doesn't have to be the cheapest, but it has to be competitive. You don't want to be wandering around in the woods trying to sell, you know, a $100 axe to people who can get them for $5. So quality product that's competitively priced and then spend all of your time, sales time, and that ought to be just about all of your time, talking to qualified prospects, people who are qualified to buy it, either financially, spiritually, mentally, geographically, whatever it is, qualified. So, and then it's the 85% comes in two parts. And then you become a person of class, quality, and substance. And that takes a little longer than picking a product, but class, quality, and substance. In other words, always be learning. I, when I get in the car, I put in whatever uh, motivational or inspirational or, or teaching uh, CD someone has sent me recently i'm forever i'm inundated with books and cds and things to read and so on and so i not only review them for them and and give them constructive criticism if they need any i learn from them so i spend as much time trying to improve myself today at age 74 than i did when i as i did when i was 22 starting out in in holiday magic quality product competitively priced sell to qualified people don't waste your time with other folks while you're becoming a person of class quality and substance that's 85 percent of all the other all the problems in selling then the other 15 percent is product a blend of product knowledge and presentation ability uh, you got to know your product you don't have to know how to take it apart and, and build it again but uh, you have to know your product well and take the training that they offer that is unique to that product uh, the head of Subaru for some odd reason was in our town yesterday and Tony got his picture taken when he was getting the keys the guy came out and said I don't get to deal with retail customers very often can I give you the keys so the head of Subaru from Japan gave him the keys uh, and uh, so product knowledge is terribly important, but your selling skill is crucial. I could say that between uh, quality uh, product, competitively priced, qualified people become a person of class, quality, and substance, and product knowledge is 90% of everything. I'm making up numbers, but I'm pretty close. I got a good gut feeling. The other 5% is sales presentation skills, but to paraphrase something Earl said in The Strangest Secret, that other 5% is worth all the rest. If you do everything I told you, you probably make a living. But if you don't get your presentation uh, skills nailed by study, I personally, being prejudiced, represent, uh, recommend the Closer series. But there's a lot of good stuff around. Find something that is better than what you're doing by accident and learn that. Learn how to present, learn how to be a master closer, learn how to be a sales infiltrator, study your skill. I walk into a dealership or any office and I see salespeople sitting around cleaning their fingernails. I'm thinking, come on. You know, this is uh, doctors have to requalify and take a continuing education and so on. Lawyers do and so on. But at salespeople, we have such a low entry bar uh, and no punishment other than lack of money 
if you don't behave. No one comes in and pulls your license. So uh, it, that's up to you. You've got to study and learn your craft. I would, at the risk of being terribly commercial, uh, let me give you a, a website they can go to and uh, uh, get my material. I gave you my, my website and, and the stuff is there, but there's a place on eBay that I allow to sell my stuff. Uh, and it's uh, stores, like a store you go into with an S on the end, stores.ebay.com forward slash Ronzoni Books. That's all one word, but it's capital R-O-N-Z-O-N-E, capital B-O-O-K-S, stores.ebay.com slash Ronzoni Books. There you can get everything I have, and I think it's a roughly 20% or more off. If I was starting out today, I would go to that site immediately, and I would get the three-book package. Get the closers one, the closers two, and sales closing power. And if I'm in town, I'm over at Ronzoni Books frequently, I will sign and date them. Uh, be happy to do that. A lot of people seem to like that. So that's my... Uh, advice for getting started. I zipped through it in a hurry and it's easier said than done, but that's exactly how I turned $91.42 into millions of dollars, even though I was dragged kicking and screaming at points along the way. <laughs> you had to have your breakthrough point with uh, Mr. Dempsey. And yeah, yep. You know what I found out, and I go to a lot of dealers now to um, help salespeople and introduce myself and um, when I ask a salesperson, what is your biggest problem? What's stopping you from selling more cars? And a lot of them are using the excuse for uh, um, non-qualified buyers. So it, it, you mentioned, you know, deal with qualified buyers. Uh, don't waste your time with the other folks. And I believe this is one of the biggest challenge for salespeople in today's world. And uh, my training is uh, really focused on how to qualify uh, your buyer um, efficiently while you become likable as well so this is something that uh, you guys seem to head um, down pretty fast and and the new generation of salespeople are more of motivators and they focus on the five percent uh, presentation and, and product knowledge more than the than, than their sales skills is what I believe yeah I, I see it myself all the time uh, and it's a shame because potentially great careers wither on the vine. I'm forever seeing on some of the sites you go on in groups that we both belong to. Uh, I tried car selling for five years, uh, you know, or I did this for two years, or uh, I've been selling insurance for six months. I'm thinking about making a change. And I'm reminded somewhere in the Bible, there's a story, I'm paraphrasing it, but a story of a guy who has a problem. Let's say it's a fish in his raincoat pocket and the room he's in smells like fish. So he goes into another room and after he's been there a few minutes, it too smells like rotten fish. <laughs> he goes into another room. The problem is the fish in your pocket, get rid of it. The, the problem is, is, you know, within reason, I had some automobile salespeople come to a seminar I did one time, and I could tell there was something wrong with them. There was about a dozen of them. They were all dressed more shabbily than the other people in the room. Well, it, when we got around to questions and answers. They said, well, here's our problem, Mr. Gay. we got we got to sell more cars. I said, what kind do you sell? And they said, Yugos. You remember the Yugo? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They had, they had 
picked the Yugo because it was the cheapest car in the United States at the time without paying attention to the fact it was also the worst built. I used to kid about it and say the Yugo had rear window defrosters so your hands wouldn't get cold while you pushed it. And uh, so I, I said, why? Of all the things you could have been selling, why Yugos? Well, it was the cheapest car and the dealership's right here. And so I said, today, quit. Go back, clear out your desk, turn in your resignation. Before you leave this room, talk to some people who would really like to have you uh, selling quality products that are competitively priced, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and uh, I think I was of some help to him. The legend is the entire Yugo dealership lost all of their salespeople that day. I don't know that for a fact, but that's what I was told later. But if so, I did them a great favor. But but still, that takes part of the 80%, 85% solves that part. The rest of it is back on you. Somebody asked me the other day in a group, what's the biggest problem? They were asking everybody. I said, what's the biggest problem you face in your business? I wrote, me. <laughs> that's that's, <laughs> that's it. Once you figure out your success or failure or some combination thereof is you, uh, then you're off and running. I've, uh, occasionally, I, I usually warn them now, but I occasionally scare people who brought me in to talk to their salespeople. I said, I, like Lewis and Clark were sent out by President Thomas Jefferson or whoever sent them to find out what was out there in the, in the great expanse of America. Uh, and then they came back and filed their report two, three, four years later. I said, I was sent out by William Penn Patrick and Dr. Napoleon Hill and all these wonderful people I've had the honor and pleasure of working with, Ogmandino uh, and so on. I was sent out to find why people didn't succeed in selling. I have the answer. It's you. <laughs> you know, that, that's it. You were selling mirrors at the time. <laughs> yeah, I could join your company where you're failing and I promise you I'll be the number one salesperson within 30 days. Promise you. I don't care what the product is. I'll be the number one salesperson. I was. I wrote some scripts for a, a international cemetery company. They specialize in cemeteries but pre-need sales where you buy your burial plot ahead of time. And I went down, listened to them in the room, took some calls, wrote some scripts and then went out to test them. And uh, went out and gave the presentation. I'm making up numbers, but I think I gave four presentation and closed three or made five and closed four, whatever. And this is talking to people about things they don't want to talk about. You're going to die. Let's reserve your spot now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's not a cheerful thing necessarily. And uh, I, I closed all those, but I'd had a young salesman who'd been with him a few months. I made him ride along with me because I didn't know how to fill out the paperwork. And I wasn't going to take, you know, I didn't know how big the crypt had to be. And, and the, uh, the, there's all sorts of things that go into digging a hole in the ground that I didn't know about. And uh, so I had him go along to handle the paperwork while I just did the work. At the end of the day, we're driving back to the office. He said, Mr. Gay, I really appreciate the opportunity to ride along with you. But I didn't learn as much as I'd hoped because all of your sales were laydowns today. <laughs> <laughs> you know where I'm going with it. I said, I'm a sales infiltrator. They weren't laydowns. I made them laydowns. Several of the sales were closed while you were still trying to figure out where to put your briefcase down. <laughs> Which brings me to something we probably should have covered earlier. Most sales are made, lost, or at least severely affected, positively or negatively, in the first 10 to 15 seconds. Yeah, I believe in that. Yeah. When they look at you, 
run your physical image, the way you carry yourself, the way you approach, whether you bite your fingernails or not, whether you reek of cigarette smoke or whatever, and they run that information through their little computer-like brains and compare you to everybody else they've ever known, and whatever that composite average is, they either like it or they don't. If they don't like it, you're in deep trouble, and all that happens in 10, you're not in the house yet or you're, they're not seated at your desk at the dealership yet. You haven't walked over to the first car yet, and they've already decided whether they're going to do business with you or not. Yeah. Hey, everyone. Velko here. Just wanted to take a moment to tell you about my great e-learning platform, The Steps to the Sale. If you're looking to invest in some training, if you want to be in the top producer category and make cool six figures easily, you have to sharpen your mind. And Velco Sales Training Steps to the Sale is the way for you to achieve your goals. We have over 200 video lessons and more are being produced constantly. So when you're ready to start earning higher growth and when you're ready to start building massive book of business and massive value in yourself, take the Steps to the Sale for Test Drive by clicking the link below and start mastering your future today. I would also like to tell you if you have any questions or if you need any assistance, Email me at velco at velcosalestraining.com. Some, some salespeople could spend four hours with people like that. And uh, even though first impression is, is you know, uh, one of the most important things, we still have a chance for last impression. <laughs> so sure. A lot of salespeople but, but, give but up. Why dig that hole? <laughs> but you're right. You're absolutely yeah. right. And, and and the majority of the salespeople underestimate their uh, their greeting and, and their approach, their initial approach. And it's they have to control that. Um, I got a question about uh, goal setting. Um, what factors do you consider most of uh, most when you're setting your goals? What, what's the most important thing before well, you set your goals? The. the uh, th- Dr. Hill and I had a running battle about this for some time, and then I, because in thinking in uh, the Stranger Secret, he says, "Whatever the mind of man can conceive and believe, it can achieve." And I said to him one day over lunch, I said, "Unless they're crazy," <laughs> and and he uh, put down his fork and said, "What?" And I said, "Well, it, it, whatever the mind of man can conceive and believe." it can achieve assuming he's sane and he sets some specific goals and so on. So uh, we finally resolved that and and even Dr. Hill would say occasionally in a speech, uh, you can, whatever you conceive and believe, blah, 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 unless you're crazy. So I I got him one over on that little point. The other uh, thing about goals and Dr. Hill and I worked this out together, probably mostly him, but I was at least at the table and talking was goals must be specific, measurable, and attainable. Specific example, I want to be rich. That's not a specific goal. Uh, I want to be rich. How rich? How? It's a dollar figure we're talking about. What's the dollar amount in the bank you'd be happy with after all your debts are paid off? Must be measurable. Uh, that sort of goes along with specific, but it must be measurable so you can see the progress or lack thereof that you're making, and it must be attainable. He goes, oh, well, everything's attainable. Not really. I was attitude coach for the astronauts and ground crews of Apollo 15, 16, 17. Let's say today I want to be an astronaut, not a passenger on somebody's ship for $20 million, but an astronaut. I can't do it. I'm 74. I have an irregular heartbeat. I, although I got a pilot's license, I just did it during the downtime in my life to amuse myself. Uh, I don't qualify. I'm not a scientist who they can teach how to fly later. Becoming a, a NASA astronaut for me is not attainable. 
and I can give you other examples, but I know you got the you got the message. So specific, measurable, attainable. Uh, the uh, and then my real secret is I break that down to daily. Let me give you an example. One year, oh, 20 years ago or something, I decided I want to make a million dollars in a year above and beyond real estate investments and whatever else might be going on passively. I wanted to make a million dollars, not adjusted for inflation, a million. So I thought back to my talks with Dr. Hill, specific, measurable, attainable. And I discovered that if you're going to make a million dollars a year divided by 365 days, uh, then you must make $2,739.73 a day, seven days a week. That's how you make a million dollars. So my goal, and I still have it in my mind most days, uh, my goal that year was to make a million dollars, and I rounded it up so I didn't have to remember an odd number, 2739.73 is harder to remember than 2800. I made it 2800. So now, instead of having a goal for this year, and long about June, you figure out there's not a chance in the world of you getting there. So you drop your goal and get ready for January 1st to set next year's goal. Uh, when you have to make $2,739.73 a day, it has it right in front of you all the time. Now, here's the example. Let's say I don't make anything today. That makes gives me a sick feeling. But let's say I don't make anything today. Tomorrow morning when I get up, my goal is still 2739.73. It's a daily thing. And the best example I can give you is one day, one week, 10 days, I accepted a tour of uh, Norway with a new company starting up run by an old friend of mine. He paid me $9,500 per talk for 10 talks spread over 11 days. He bought, I don't remember the, the number, but thousands of books to give out at their big opening meeting. And at the end of the 10-day tour, he and his board of directors were so pleased with what I did, they gave me 3% of the company, which on that day, trading on the European Stock Exchange, was worth $14 million. So... Uh, back in the room celebrating with a little wine and so on. I happened to talk, Gigi was with me, but we were talking, then the phone rang, it was a friend of mine, and I told him what had happened. In the space of 11 days, I had made 14,100,000 plus book sales. I probably made it 200,000, uh, uh, 14,200,000. And he says, wow, you're done for four or five years, or for 14 years, or 15 years, whatever. And I said, no, tomorrow... I have to make $2,739.73. On the days I made nothing, the next day was $2,739. On the days you make $14 million, it's $2,739. You keep that daily goal in front of you. And then uh, it, and it, it sort of sets it up. You know, people watch golf and say, well, it's, a, it's one big tournament. No, it's not. They say, oh, okay, all right. It's a four-day tournament. No, it's not. Uh, what it is is 288 to 260 tournaments because each stroke is a tournament. What you did before and what you do next don't make any difference. The one thing that makes a difference is that stroke. And while I'm on a golf thing, let me tell you something else that I've done to keep me straight. Years ago when I was a kid, through my family, I belonged to East Lake Country Club, now East Lake Golf Club in Atlanta, one of the finest courses in the world. And uh, uh, the par there is 72, and it's a tough 72. But I have a ringer score there of 54. 
50 foot, 18 strokes under par. Here's what a ringer score is. First time you go out and play, you write down all your scores and you turn them in or don't to get your handicap. But you also keep a copy of that card. So that's your starting point. Next time you go out, any hole that you play better, you erase the previous score on that hole and write in your new lower score. Well, it took me years, 10 years or so, to shoot a 54 at East Lake, but eventually, I birdied every hole on the course. I never had an eagle in my life, never had a hole in one, but I birdied every hole on the course. Therefore, my ringer score is 54 instead of 72 par. Here's the point of that. Velcro, that showed me if I put all my game together, if I got all my stuff together at one time, I'm capable of shooting a 54 at East Lake. I've done it. I just didn't do it all on one day or all in one year, <laughs> but I am capable of birdieing every hole of East Lake. I've done it. So when you know you face a tough obstacle, if you've broken things down into measurable little bites, I coined the term years ago that you could eat an ele elephant as long as you ate it one bite at a time. If you break it down into bite-sized pieces and with financial goals and sales goals uh, into daily pieces, I see people in the groups you and I are in all the time, I'm going to sell 30 cars this month or 40 cars or whatever, fill in the blank. Some sell a lot more, most sell less. Uh, but they need to break that down into not a monthly goal, but a daily goal. I'm walking in today and I'm going to sell to give myself some cushion. My daily goal is to, for a person who's trying to sell 30, make your daily goal two. And of course, they don't work seven days a week, most of them, but I'm going to keep math simple. If they work on that and keep their head down and concentrate on that, what they're really doing is they got a shot at 60 and they'll certainly do 30 if they keep it right in front of them. But they wait to the, I see it every uh, month. We're about to come up on it Saturdays the 15th. On or about the 15th, the, the whining will start. Well, I was gonna sell this, but I don't have a shot at it now. Da -da 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 and in addition to that, who's to say September or October stands alone? Today is the 13th of the month. Therefore, make your goal between the 13th of this month and the 13th of next month broken down daily and get to work. I, I, I know things are easier to talk about, but I haven't said a thing to you today that when I'm operating at my best, I haven't done for the better part of, of uh, over 40 years. Yeah, definitely a great advice because it's, uh, it's not only uh, logical, but very motivational. I remember when uh, my daughter was born and before it was born it was uh, just like a natural natural boost of motivation for me and i went to the president of uh, of the organization and then uh, i offered him a, a business plan that i've made so i changed my schedule to working only four days of the week so i can spend time with uh, uh, the mother of my daughter and, and and my daughter and i wanted to uh, balance life and and um, and high performance at work so I promised them that I'm gonna sell 30 cars a month and in the beginning I was I was I was wondering because I've had few months that I've sold comfortably 30 cars a month but I it's I had this fear and I remember we were in the hospital for one of the um, checkups and I saw a quote from uh, Henry Ford and it was something like uh, you know there's no uh, jobs that are too complicated as long as you break it down to, to small jobs or something like that. Yeah. And it's very similar to what you're saying. 
and it absolutely made sense because I created my schedule then for uh, I broke it down on on daily activities and my goal was to sell three cars per day one car before noon uh, second car before five and another one um, from five to close so if I didn't sell a car before noon my goal was still to sell one before five there you and, go that's and, it instead of getting all tangled up in you didn't sell one in the morning because you you gotta yeah. sell yourself to your own goals. You gotta play tricks with your mind, uh, just like some uh, marathon runners, you know, are thinking about. Uh, they break it down with uh, with the mile counters, and uh, uh, I know I do that when I when I exercise at the gym. Uh, I do it with the reps. Sometimes I count each five reps. So it's just better to to just like you said. You know, you can't eat an elephant at once. And it's a phenomenal advice that uh, that I think is very valuable. One last question, because we're uh, we're going well over an hour, and thank you for being uh, so generous with your time. Uh, but uh, what's your favorite sales technique? Uh, I really want uh, the salespeople to that are listening right now to uh, uh, take something. Uh, obviously, there was phenomenal things that were shared uh, by you, but I want them to to take a sales technique that would uh, change their career and something simple they can implement today. Okay, uh, I can tell you exactly what to do. Uh, at least, I, I suggest you get all three books and everything I know about selling, everything I know about selling Vilco, Vilco is written in those three books. I don't know, people are always asking me to write the closers part three and I said, what? What am I going to say? I've, I've said it all. I don't know anything else, and that's far more than anybody else will ever know or learn or use. So I'm pretty much, under my own name, done uh, doing it. And here's the answer. The last chapter of the Closers Part 2 starts on page uh, 257, I believe, uh, explains in about 40 pages exactly what a master closer is, does, and how to be one and how to become a sales infiltrator. Here's all I do when I'm selling. Here's the strongest clothes I've ever used. Uh, and it works like magic. And I hear it now so much, I, I'm afraid I'm gonna have to come up with something else because it's getting almost too common, but it is this. Uh, I spend from the time, let's say I'm selling door to door or in a dealership, whatever. As soon as I'm out of the front door of my house, I'm on camera. It nowadays, literally, probably, but I figure I'm on camera, I'm on stage. So I'm closing. If I get out of my car in front of your place, I'm closing by the way I put on my jacket. I'm closing by the way I pick up my briefcase, da, 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 every step along the way. And then when I meet you, I'm closing and doing sales infiltration. And don't, attention listeners, don't call me and ask what sales infiltration is. Buy the book read it and then call me. I don't want to waste time going over this again. But uh, every step along the way is designed to maneuver and react to the person uh, that I'm working with. And I have one goal in mind, it's not to close the sale at that point. It is to get myself into a position where I can say, quote, okay, based on what we've discussed, Here's what I recommend we do. Here the, the we, okay? Here's what I suggest we do. I've already infiltrated them. We're already on the same team. I'm no longer the enemy. That's all in sales infiltration. 
based on what we've discussed, here's what I suggest we do and fill in the blank, whatever it is you suggest they do. Buy the vacuum cleaner, get the red car versus the white car, this and that and so on. Uh, here's what I suggest we do, blah, 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 blah. Pause, fair enough. My whole presentation of everything I sell is designed to get me in a position where I can say, based on what we've discussed, here's what I suggest we do, blank, fair enough, and to expect a positive answer. I don't ask that until I feel the atmospheric pressure change. People say, you know, what's your closing rate on closing questions? Almost 100%. Because I don't say that till I know where they are because I've gotten them and us, we, the new team, I've gotten us into the position where I can righteously expect a positive answer to that. And on the rare occasion where they don't say, yeah, that's fair enough, let's do it. On that rare occasion, fair enough is a hard thing to say no to, uh, but it, it usually comes out with different words. But what it is, is it smokes out their final problem, maybe something you missed along the way. It smokes it out. I, then I say, okay, if it's doable, I say, okay, I understand. I'm sorry I missed that. Well, based on what we've just discussed, here's what I suggest we do. Da, 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 da. Fair enough. Hmm. And it, it is a magic phrase. It's a, I grew up listening to fair enough all the time in the South. They weren't trying to sell anything, but it was just the way they talked. And it dawned on me that is magic, and it is. But you got to do the work to get in that position. And that includes picking a quality product that's competitively private. It's a learning your scripts. You know, people say, oh, I don't want to write work on a script. Well, everybody works on a script. After you've been selling something for 30 days, you start saying the same thing over and over again. What I'm talking about is working on a good script that was thought out, plotted, tested, etc not the script you've drifted into through laziness and slothfulness and listening to the idiot at the next desk. <laughs> yeah, that's a big, uh, big difference. And the people who learn the scripts don't sound mechanical because they love them because they know how important they are to their income and they say them with a big smile, with conviction, with eye contact and they don't sound like scripts. <laughs> no, you know, listeners, how about this? Think of your favorite movie, whatever it was. You know, uh, I've got a couple of favorites. But let's say it was Gone with the Wind, whatever, your favorite movie that can make you cry and laugh and be right there. Every word you heard is a script. Practice, memorized, and delivered with conviction by an actor who knows what they're doing, who's making far more money delivering their script than you are fighting your script. And it would never sound as good as it is uh, if it was just a natural thing. No, <laughs> right? never, never. Going with the wind would never be going with the wind if we were just videotaping a couple. Yeah, well, what you do is you get so good at it. You know, if I, uh, I know we're running over. I hope you'll get to use most of this. But uh, oh, a guy called me one day and he wanted to uh, uh, talk about uh, buying some more material. They bought a lot already. And I said, he said, I'd like for you to come in. And he said, but you don't have to cover scripting. I said, no, scripting is really important. And, and he said, I know, but you've already done that for us. And I said, how do I do it for you? It turns out he had a two or three day conference and he had over a hundred people in those three days phone my office and try to buy a book. 
And everybody who called, whether I answered the phone or one of the other folks did, everyone took them through the process of selling them a $595 uh, executive package. Uh, which is a better deal. It's got better stuff in it and so on. But, you know, that that was the deal. And he said, of the 100 people that called you, I'm making up numbers, 90 or something like that, bought the executive package using their own money. But the reason I tell you you've already taught us scripting is every single one of those calls was piped through the PA system live into our seminar. Everyone. So we've heard you and your team deliver word for word the same explanation of the executive package over a hundred times. You've you've sold us on that. We're in. So I, I want to talk about other stuff, and I said, "Fine, I'll leave. I'll leave out scripting if I can. <laughs> I don't know if I'm capable, but I'll try." <laughs> yeah, it's the key. So uh, thank you so much for your time. Please, uh, before you hang up, uh, let everyone know again uh, where can they find you. Share some links, share some addresses. I know that uh, um, you offer autographed book copies as well. So share one more time. How can people find you? One of two ways. One, and I recommend you do this no matter where you buy. Go to bfg3.com. B is in Ben, F is in Frank, G is in Gay, the numeral three dot com. Go there. Little box will drop down. Put in your no cost, no obligation. Nobody's going to bug you. Put in your name and email address. Then whenever I'm doing something in their area or there's a special or something, they'll get an email that, that tells them about it. So getting registered is a smart idea. No cost, no obligation, no messing around. Then click on products or coaching or anything and look around that website. And if there's anything we can do for you, let me know. In the meantime, and I don't know how long from now this, the recording of this might go, it may not be in effect a year from now or six months from now, but right now, if you go to stores, S-T-O-R-E-S dot eBay dot com forward slash Ronzoni Books, capital R-O-N-Z-O-N-E, capital B, books, all one word. Go there and everything I offer is available in little packages and so on. And roughly, I, I don't have the stuff in front of me, but 20% off or more off of the regular prices at my website. So while that's up, I would take advantage of that. All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, you